Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. A um, few things. Um, the, we sent out an email last night to let our members know who we'd be voting on for the nominating committee um, in our congregational meeting, which will be very short. It'll be a very short meeting. Um, and Sarah Cronin's name was not on that list. And that was totally my fault and not intentional at all. So whatever list you got in your email, it's that list plus Sarah Cronin. I was just looking at an email, trying to transpose that to a text, and I just messed up. So um, she's in there. Just put that in your calculus. Um, And we're happy about that, for the record. Um, I, um, this... Last, last week, um, I mentioned uh, just very briefly from the pulpit for the first, or the music stand, from the first time uh, that we, uh, Wednesday nights, we've for several years have taken our kids to be a part of uh, children's programming at Christ Community Church um, in Montreat. And I, I mentioned that that wouldn't be happening anymore starting next school year. And I had, that was the first time I said that from up here. Most people, I think, already knew that. Um, but just to speak clearly to that, that is not because we are now fighting. There's not a war between us and Christ community. Um, you are still allowed to be friends with people of Christ community. This is not like the sharks and the jets. Um, um, <laughs> We, we just, there is a lot of kids. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we have a lot of kids. Um, they're a big church. They have a lot of kids. We filled up that building. Their, their youth ministry uh, just forfeited their room on Wednesday nights for all of the semester just because there wasn't any more room for kids. So it's just a space issue. We're not mad at each other by any means. Um, and in fact, there's still the hope that if somehow we could figure out a scenario we were, where we were all together, that would be the preference. That's still what we want. So I say all that because we love Christ Community Church in Montreal. They are not just an EPC church that's close to us. They helped plant us and keep us alive for years. We love people over there. We have dear friends over there. Um, and that's going to stay that way. And we're partners in mission in this valley. So please make sure you understand that. Uh, and if you're a parent, help your children to understand that too. That these are our friends and our partners. And if we could figure this out, if somebody wants to donate a very large building to us, or them, but us, that would be awesome. Uh, and we would solve this problem. So you can make your checks out to Valley Hope Church. Um, also, last week, uh, I, I just stepped away from the series that we're in uh, and, and talked about the, how the kingdom is made up of people who are not like us uh, and talked about the need to see that happen in our church on any number of, of levels um, demographically between uh, singles and marrieds and, um, and young and old, white, black, Latino. Um, and then I went to Presbytery this weekend in Roanoke, Virginia. And, woo, <laughs> Roanoke. Um, never been there before. Cool city, cool town. 
Um, did not like how they called themselves the star of the Blue Ridge. That was a little offensive, but other than that, I don't care why. No, she's from Roanoke. We're not going to give her a platform to defend Roanoke. They're fine. They're great. Uh, very nice church, lovely church, uh, both structurally and the people were wonderful. But uh, on Friday afternoons at Presbytery, we always have somebody uh, either come in or from the Presbytery kind of do some training time so it's not just endless meetings. And uh, this time there was a, a pastor from Harrisonburg, Virginia, of this church called uh, Divine Unity Community Church, I think that's what it was. He called it Duck. Um, uh, it was him, not me. Um, it's, a, it's a big church. It's got over a thousand people in it. And um, he, he's a young black pastor speaking to a room full of old white guys. By and large, that's what our presbytery is made of. Um, and he was talking about having a multi-church, a multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-ethnic church. It was, it was wonderful. He was so great, so, uh, so gentle in ways that he could have been sort of rough. Uh, and you could, he was dealing with some difficult things, um, just kind of surveying the news from the past couple of years. You know, some moments you could feel everybody in the room go like, oh, what is he going to say here? Um, uh, and, and he just was very, very gentle, and, but also very clear and, and plain. And so it was just nice. It was cool for me to see that we, we talked about this in our church on Sunday. And then a few days later in our presbytery, in the larger body that we're part of in the EPC, talking and thinking about the same sort of thing. And uh, I was just really encouraged. You know, this church that, that he's a part of, it's not an EPC church. Um, they're, they are, what did he say? I think they're something like 40 or 50% African American, 30, 40% white, and then lots of other th things on the board. Um, and his point was the same, that God demonstrates the power of the gospel when his people come together like this. And it requires costly sacrifice. That, uh, in order to be hospitable like this, you have to say, well, uh, I'm not going to have everything my way. And that's just how it's going to be so I can make space for people who are not like me. It was a real encouragement. And uh, I hope that we follow that example, that uh, we, we don't want to just look the same. We, we want our tables to be filled with people who have different skin color than us and, you know, have different demographic status than us, socioeconomic status, because such is the kingdom of God. So uh, I hope to see that happen for us here and in our presbytery at large. Um, one other note from presbytery, and I just tell you this because I want you to feel connected to, to, to the body that we are connected to. Um, we support uh, several missionaries. Most of them are EPC missionaries. Uh, one family, the, the Dean family, um, is in Central Asia. And um, Lynn Dean, her, her mother recently died. And they, they came back for that and were coming home for some leave. And uh, 
basically while they were at Presbytery, she found out her father died. Um, so it's happened very close together. And, uh, you know, it's what they're doing is already supremely difficult. And then to lose both of her parents within the space of weeks is, is just added on top of it. So uh, I'd, I'd encourage you to be in prayer for them. I'd like to pray for them now, um, as well as uh, Andrew Brunson, a missionary in Turkey who's been imprisoned, bogus charges. Uh, he's, he's from here. His home church is Christ Community. He's an EPC pastor. Um, so I want to just pray for them. That's our family, and uh, we want to pray that God brings them comfort and and healing in their hearts, and obviously want to pray that Andrew Brunson would, would be set free. He's got a, a trial, a second phase of his trial, theoretically, coming up in a week or so, and we just hope that, that this cycle of political tit-for-tat bargaining would be broken and that our brother would be able to just come home. All right, would you uh, bow your heads and pray with me? God of all comfort, we thank you that we can look to you, our Lord, our Father, our Comforter. And God, I pray right now this morning for the Dean family and the grief uh, that's there, losing parents, uh, in-laws, grandparents. They, they've given everything for the sake of, of your name and your fame and um, just to have this thrown on top as, as another thing that, that could potentially continue to be a burden. God, I pray that you would come and bear them up, that your people would respond to them and, and bear them up, that we would pray for them continually and support them practically. Lord Jesus, I pray that as their home for, for a little bit, I pray that their wounds would be bound up and they would have words of healing spoken to them and over them. In their grieving, God, let them draw close to you and help them to sense that you draw near to them. God, we pray similarly that you would draw close to, to Andrew Brunson, our brother. God, we pray that you will expose completely what is being done in darkness. God, that uh, all of those who are using an innocent man for the purpose of political gain would be exposed and shamed. God, we pray that you would disarm the powers and principalities that yet oppress Andrew. Father, we pray that we would be faithful in praying for him. God, let him be borne up on the prayers of his family. And we pray, God, that you would grant wisdom to those in authority, uh, that whatever levers of power need to be pulled would, would be done so with wisdom and justice, and that this good and right thing will be done. Help this man to come home to his family. Father, we pray this morning for ourselves. We pray that our hearts would be soft before you. We pray that your word would pierce us and penetrate our hearts. 
God, help us to come into conflict with your word that we might be overcome by your word. Discomfort us where we need be discomforted. And comfort us where we need your comfort. We ask that you would do this for your praise, your glory, and our good. Amen. I, I was meant to preach on 1 Samuel 27 and 29 uh, last week, and I'm just going to keep going with where uh, we're going in terms of keeping up with the story. Um, David has been anointed king, but is not king. And for much of the book of 1 Samuel, towards the end, he's, he's fleeing. And in 27 and 29, he, he ends up living with Israel's enemies. They take him in. Uh, and the irony there is just dripping all over the text, that here's Israel's king living with the, the Philistines. And um, ultimately, they kick him out. They've been cool with him for a while, and then they ultimately, they're about to go back into war with Israel, and they say, we just don't know if we can trust you, man. Uh, you got to get out of here. And so we're going to look today um, at a turn in the story, because the, the reigning king of, of Israel, Saul, will see the close of his reign and the beginning, the very beginning, of David's reign as, as king. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1. Um, now remember, the, this is really one book, First and Second Samuel, really belong together. They got divided really for, for paper reasons. It's, they needed a spot to be able to have scrolls in a manageable size. And uh, this is where it gets divided, but the story very much goes together. Same, same author, same storyline. So don't be freaked out. We're going to just turn the page. We're just going to keep on going. In 1 Samuel 31, we see the end of Saul. Uh, and Saul's end is tragic and sad. He's with his son, Jonathan, in battle. They're surrounded. He knows that the end has come. And, and basically, he cannot bear the idea that he would die at the hand of the Philistines. He just doesn't want to see that, that his life end in the worst way that he can imagine. So he says uh, to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come uh, and thrust me through and mistreat me. Uh, his armor bearer basically can't do it, um, and he, he falls upon his own sword, and his armor bearer does the same, and uh, Saul's reign ends this way. He dies at the hand of, at his own hand, so that he doesn't die at the hands of his enemy. The bodies of his sons are around him. His kingdom is in ruin, and in fact, uh, the Philistines do find him the next day and, and mistreat him just as they feared. He, they cut off his head and use him as a trophy. Second Samuel chapter 1 is David, the story of David hearing the news of Saul's death. And, you know, we have been tracking along with David being opposed by Saul, chased by Saul, hounded and hunted by Saul. And now David is finally free of the threat of Saul. It's this interesting story. David is in his camp. He's fought his own battles just, just before this. And this uh, Amalekite foreigner comes to him with his robe torn and ashes on his head. And 
the Amalekite gives his version of Saul's death, and it doesn't match up with the story that we see in 1 Samuel 31. And the question is, like, what's going on here? And it seems, really, that the Amalekite is is grabbing a hold of this opportunity to try to gain some favor with David. He figures David's going to be pumped, Saul is dead, David gets to be king, and the Amalekite wants to be the one to sort of have a hand in this. So he doesn't want to play it too strong, but you know, just, just enough of him in the story to, to get some credit. So he brings the crown of Saul and the, the armband uh, that Saul wore to David as these symbols of, the, of royalty. And he says, you know, Saul was uh, leaning on his spear, you know, trying to kill himself. And he said, you know, I basically just helped him along. I, I helped end his life. He's hoping that these tokens of power and maybe helping David get to the throne, it seems like he's, he's trying to angle for some position in David's in David's kingdom. And David uh, says, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You know, we've seen this already in David's story. That he will not put his hand and actively oppose Saul. He refuses to do it on multiple occasions, repents for even touching Saul's robe. And the Amalekite has misplayed his hand. He has uh, come to the wrong guy with this tactic. Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So that didn't work out. Now David is going to properly respond to the news of Saul's death. And this, we would say, is maybe a moment for David to do the happy dance. He doesn't have to live in a cave anymore. He doesn't have to uh, live with the foreigners. In one story, he's pretended to be insane, like letting his hair grow out and like babbling and drooling all over himself. All this is over. Now it's his time, his time to shine. But in fact, we see something different. And we'll read together, starting at uh, verse 17 of chapter 1 in 2 Samuel. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. We don't know what that is. Just don't ask. We don't know. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the dangers, the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, let the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothe you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. 
Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is, this is David the poet. David the theologian. Not just David the warrior and king. Providing a particular kind of leadership that really only David can provide. And he composes this lamentation, not just for show for those around him, but that all the people of Israel would not just hear it, but they would memorize it, that they would know it. David laments for Saul and Jonathan. This is, this is a really un, unexpected, surprising turn of character and for a man who we have seen is full of unexpectedly good character. You know, he's, a, he's had many opportunities to put his hand against Saul, to kill Saul even. And he just won't do it. And even here, when not even Saul would be there to see him gloating, David instead laments what was not. It's worth stopping here and looking back on Saul this character that Saul was in the story, this first king of Israel. And it's, it's important to track his downfall. You know, we, we saw him as this almost overly humble guy to begin with. Un, he just wanted to take care of his donkeys, and he gets called into this office. And yet, very quickly, we see this stubbornness of character in him that he can't, he just can't hear and obey the word of the Lord. And he, he, there's also this sort of darkness that swirls around his story. You know, he's, he's a tormented man. That's really the language of the text. That he, is, he is tormented. He seems to be both naturally a paranoid individual and yet also supernaturally tormented in his paranoia. And he just spirals in this cycle of mistrust and distrust, this desperation to hold on to power, so that that he'll even attempt to to murder his son. Now, it's worth asking as we look at this dark figure who fades out of the story, you know, why does this happen to him? Are we meant to see Saul as this victim who has no control, no agency in his story, who is really subject to his, his natural paranoia and these supernatural forces and really was basically crushed under the wheels of destiny or something? And that's really not the picture that, that 1 Samuel presents to us of Saul. Saul has next to him for much of his story the the prophet Samuel who gives clear advice and even direction from God. And and before even David is on the scene, Saul refuses the clear direction of God. And so the, the path that Saul sets out on is not one that he is pushed down. It is it is one that he chooses. 
and all the way down this road of, of darkness and mistrust and murder and ultimately judgment. Saul is not being dragged down unwillingly. He is, he is running down this path. Saul, Saul is this sobering reminder that when you follow your darkest natural inclinations, you will reach the bottom. That way lies death. It's, it's tempting to believe, like, I'm fine now, and therefore I will always be fine. Because that's sort of our natural inclination as people, is to project into the future what we've experienced into the past. Well, I, I give myself over to, to this or that appetite now, and I, I'm basically fine now, so I'll probably keep being fine. And, and the scriptures just don't provide you that comfort. The Bible is not there to tell you, you'll probably be okay. This is maybe one of the most disconcerting things that people find when they approach scripture is they assume that this is a book to tell you how to be a good person and, and basically that you're, everything is going to be okay. But actually, the, much of the Bible is... is telling you the opposite, that you're not okay. And actually, if you, if you keep living under the direction that you're going, you'll really not be okay. You, you aren't a good person. And so the, the Bible becomes very confusing at times when you expect this message of how to be a good person and there's just all these stories of really bad people oftentimes doing really bad things sometimes unchecked the the world that scripture opens you to at times is a view of the world that is is very dark and bloody and what scripture is trying to tell you what Saul's story is really trying to tell you i think is this is not a miscast or misrepresented story or view of the world. This is an accurate telling of the world. You may be fine right now, but you may not be as fine as you think you are. And you should be, you should be concerned. Judgment doesn't necessarily take the form always of lightning descending from the heavens. Very often, Lightning, judgment comes at a point of your own sword. Very often the judgment, the darkness that will come upon you in judgment is the darkness that you throw yourself into. That is the sobering reality of Saul's story. And here we have this view of Saul. This very, very dark, tragic figure and here's David, who at least up to this point is identified as this man after God's heart, a righteous, a good man, a powerful man, popular man, with the skills and the abilities to overtake 
this increasingly insane evil man. And David, even in the moment when he's already dead, cannot help but see Saul as the man who is anointed by God for the position he occupies. This is the most remarkable thing about David, I think. Is that he is a man who so deeply respects and honors and trusts the providential hand of the king of Israel that even when it seems like Saul is on a platter or the moment when Saul is actually dead, David refuses to treat him like you or I might treat an evil ruler. You know, we want, we want the David that kills Goliath to rise up and crush this crazy tyrant. And, and time and time again, he, he lays his sword aside. You know, often you're going to go through life and you're going to have people in your life that are just bad people. They're, they're bad bosses, they're inconsiderate at best, they're abusive, you know, malicious. And the temptation will always be, I, I have to overthrow them. I have to actively seek to overthrow them. You know, Peter, Peter writes this letter, 1 Peter, to a church that is persecuted. They're on the verge of death. Some of them who receive his letter in 1 Peter, they, they will die at the hand of a, a wicked empire. And Peter writes these instructions in regards to how they should treat the empire. Crazy, possibly even crazy King Nero. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He goes on to say, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You know, I... There's, of course, enormous space in... in permission for Christians to actively oppose unjust and immoral instruction. The, the laws of God do not, are not trumped by the laws of man. You know, so I, I don't read back in history and look at Dr. Martin Luther King and say, you know, he's breaking the law by leading these sit-ins that's against the law. I really shouldn't have done that. I, not at all. Very much support the breaking of those laws. But there's also this, this strong element in, in Christian tradition that we are, in some sense, inheritors of David's trust. That we have to trust that not even wicked and evil people who hold authority hold that authority apart from the permission of God. It doesn't make them okay. It doesn't make them good at all. And it doesn't mean that we don't stand up and say, hey, that is wicked and that is evil. 
But deep within us is supposed to be wound this trust that there is no corner of creation that has escaped the notice, the care, the oversight of the high king of heaven. David teaches us that. That we must trust God even in the face of those who hold power and misuse it. Now, hear me. People will use this rationale to legitimize and cover for abuse. And the, among the number of things I would want to say to that is one, God who holds and delegates authority will judge the abuser. And two, any place where the church has the ability to disempower and punish the abuser, the church should actively do that. So any church scenario where in the name of authority that an abuser has received shelter in the church and not justice, that is not a godly application of this passage. If anybody has ever abused you in the name of Jesus, my, my encouragement to you would be to get away as quickly as possible and that this church will help you get away as quickly as possible. And nobody in the name of Jesus should protect and shield an abuser from justice. That is not a correct application of this passage. What is done in darkness should not be kept in darkness in the church. And unfortunately, that has not always been the case. That is not what we are talking about here. We are on the side of the abused and the mistreated. And yet, somehow, even in the midst of mistreatment and abuse, even if we must run away as David ran away, our hope is ultimately in the God who declares himself to be king of heaven and earth. That, that that God, that king, will ultimately bring his sword down on those who are unjust and wicked in their wielding of power. Now David, he writes this, this poem, this song of lament, mourning what Saul, basically what Saul could have been. Saul is involved in giving good things to Israel, leads, people in, leads the people of God into some victories. But the, the heart of the lament is really for Jonathan, his friend. Jonathan is mentioned at the beginning, but the language turns to be very personal in his descriptions of lament over Jonathan. When Saul is described, he's saying he doesn't want the, the celebration of the Philistines. He can't, he can't bear the thought of the enemies of the people of God celebrating. And he wants the people of Israel to mourn. But when he starts talking about Jonathan, he's talking about me and I. Jonathan and David were knit together in love. Friendship. Covenantal friendship. And there's this this rending inside of him that David will never forget. We're, we'll see 
later weeks how David's love for Jonathan carries on through the generations by his covenant with Jonathan and his family. David is in many respects for us a great picture of what a king is supposed to be, submitted to the authority of of the true king of Israel, which is God himself. And yet David, David is only a shadow. David is himself, is only a dim reflection of who Israel's real and true king will be revealed to be. For, for David, he, he laments over the death of his enemies. But he ultimately comes to power because of the death of his enemy. And death claims his deep friend. He loses him forever to the grave. But when, when Israel's king, real and true king, will come clearly into focus. The roles will be reversed. It, it is not that, that Jesus will come into power when all of his enemies are finally destroyed. It is that Jesus himself will die for his enemies and in so doing be enthroned in power. In Romans 5 Paul describes just this dynamic. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. By the accounting of the ways of the world, there can only be one true king. And so the only way to rightly account for that system of power, the enemies of the real king must die. But Jesus will come and tell the story of a different and better kingdom that does not operate the way the kingdoms of this world operate. And praise God that it is so. Because instead of Jesus riding in as all-conquering hero who crushes all of those who oppose him, Jesus establishes the kingdom of God not upon the basis of their blood, but on the basis of his own blood. He opens up a way and a space in the kingdom, not just for all those who have been forever faithful to him, because there are none of those, but instead for all of the faithless people that there are who have committed all of these vile acts of treason, Jesus offers himself. While David trusts God to somehow deal with Saul, Jesus more perfectly embodies that trust. Trusting that even as he obeys his father, even to the point of death, that on the other side of his death, his truest victory will be won. The grave for David takes and swallows up his dearest friend. 
But when Jesus, the real king of Israel, enters into the grave, he wins for his people a friendship that cannot be broken. So that now Jesus does not utter lament for any one of his friends. Because there is nothing, nothing, nothing. Paul will write later in the book of Romans, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. No enemy that comes against you, no power that displays itself against you is sufficient to rip you out of your great friend, the king of heaven and earth. David, for us, is just a pale reflection of who Jesus is. The longings of all of David's laments are fulfilled in the coming of the Son of God. The true king of Israel establishes the kingdom for people who, like me and you, who might otherwise go the way of Saul. Instead of God abandoning us to the point of our own sword, Paul says that God reconciles, draws close, mends the relationship, reestablishes treaty, reestablishes covenant between us so that we might not be abandoned to the spiral of our own death, but caught up in the incredibly unforeseen power of the love of God as seen in the death of Jesus. We are seated with him. You and I now, are forever given the label of friends, brothers, and sisters, co-inheritors with Jesus. You, you are presented with a, an opportunity to look at the world as it really is. When you see Saul's headless, bleeding corpse at the end of 1 Samuel 31, you are given a picture of the way of the world as it follows its own appetites. Are your feet pointed in that direction? Are your toes on that trajectory? The scripture is, is presented to you this morning that you would stop and that you would turn away. Do not continue to be a participating agent in your own demise. Stop giving yourself over to the powers and principalities, natural and supernatural, that torment you and drag you down from the inside out. God does not want you to end up like Saul. And on the other hand, is the God who answers the lament of David. The God who, who dies for his enemies and establishes forever covenant with his friends, won and secured for you by Jesus. Jesus stands before you enthroned, lifted up on the cross. This is the supreme way in which he has chosen to glorify himself. Have you gotten confused on that? Have you, have you lost sight of that? Have you been just drifting along, easily caught up in the ways that you so naturally go? Have you forgotten the miracle, the beauty of what Jesus does for his people? Have you heard God declare you his friend? 
This morning, you are, you are encouraged to, to respond to this king for the first time. Maybe ever. Maybe you have been wandering your own way for far too long. You've come to the cross, but then you've gone your own way. Wherever you are is not too far away from him. You, you are not in the grave this morning. However far you might be from him, you are not too far for him. And if you this morning, you are, you are living with Jesus, you have accepted the goodness of his gift, but you have forgotten to delight. Be reminded this morning that your song has been turned from lament to rejoicing. You are called here this morning to celebrate, not to just perpetuate a habit, but to celebrate, to enjoy what God has done for you and will always do for you. Because he has labeled you his friend, his family member, forever. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you that you, you are better than David ever was by a lot. And no matter how dark our story might be, no matter how we might have followed our own appetites like Saul, you have yet been merciful and kind to us. You have provided a way for us to escape the destiny that we would make for ourselves. While we have been enemies, you have died on our behalf. You have been reconciling us. We have been reconciled. God, I pray that wherever there is yet division between us, wherever we have not experienced that reconciliation, whether um, it is in some forgotten secret corner of our heart that nobody knows about, the things that we've done in darkness and tried to hide from others and hide from you, whether we have never known you, God, wherever we are in this room along that spectrum, I pray that the, the truth, the power of the reconciliation of Jesus would be impressed upon us, that we, we do not need to be enemies any longer, and that though we might yet fall short, it was while we were enemies that you died for us. You never expected us to get there on our own. You expected to carry us the whole time. Jesus, help us to see your cross, to see you enthroned in power. You are good, God. You are so, so good. And we thank you, Jesus. Amen.